Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I've got a couple of interviews for you, starting with author Olivia Clare, who's written a collection of short stories entitled Disasters in the First World. Here we go. How are you doing today, Olivia? Hi, how are you? I'm glad to be here. Good. I'm glad you could be here. I know you drove in this morning from Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, you're located in Texas right now, though. Yes, I live in Conroe, Texas. I teach at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. So I'm living in East Texas right now, but I grew up in Baton Rouge. So I'm in town for the Louisiana Book Festival, which is tomorrow. Uh, and uh, uh, so it's nice to be home. Back is is it weird kind of having this homecoming? Because I know reading your bio, you've been through a bunch of states, different places. So. Yes, it is weird. Uh, it you know it, you can never go home again, right? Which I experienced the the very first time that I came home after uh, moving out of Louisiana. So it's always strange, you know, to 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 come back. Um, but I come back pretty frequently now. Um, so I've developed my own relationship with Baton Rouge and with Louisiana as an adult you know, but not but not living here. But I come back several times a year. I love it here. Um, and even more frequently now that I live in Texas, it's just a five-hour drive for me. I get that. And your family's still here? Yes, oh, yes. Well, that makes a sense then, you know. Yes. Back. Well, yes. well, great. Oh, glad to have you here. Um, to kind of get into your, your work, um, you published a book of poetry, uh, The 26-Hour Day, back in 2015, I believe? Yes. Uh, and your most recent work is that of short fiction. And I'm wondering what made you decide to kind of move into the fiction realm? Yes, I'm still thinking about all of that myself and yeah. wondering how that happened. Um, so my book of poems came out, as you said, in 2015. And then the book of stories just came out uh, from Grove Atlantic this past June. And I had an MFA uh, from the Iowa Writers Workshop in poetry before I ever started even thinking about writing fiction. Um, so my background truly is in poetry. And then I, I, when I started to write fiction, I got another master's in fiction. And then I did a PhD in poetry. So uh, most of my education um, is in poetry. Most of my teaching, however, is in fiction. How that came about, I was uh, writing, writing, writing my poems, and one day I just wrote prose, but it was very, you know, poetic prose because something in my mind sort of wanted something bigger than what I was doing, and which is not to say you can't do that in a poem. Of course you can, and there are wonderful book-length poems, um, and so that's absolutely possible in that genre as well, but I, I wanted something... Uh, that had story, that had character. And again, you can do that in poetry, of course. There are no rules, right? Um, but I started, that's that's how prose kind of started coming out of, of what I was doing. I started writing really kind of lyrical, poetic prose. But I kept this idea of compression uh, and density that I had with my poetry. And that's never left my fiction. But that's start, sort of how it started to to bloom yeah, no, I, I get yeah. that. And I love that idea of compression. You wrote an essay about it for, for Lit Hub recently, which right. I, I found fascinating, talking about uh, certain literary heroes of yours and, like, the works that they've done that every sentence counts and, like, 
kind of going into that a little bit more, could, could you talk about that? Just like, you know, the real structure of sentences and really packing it in. Yeah. So, you know, the important thing for me to think about with compression is that compression doesn't necessarily mean that something is short, right? Uh, but it but compression means that there's density there. There's a lot in a in a short amount of space. And, you know, as poets, we think about that all of the time. And so that was something that I really wanted uh, to bring to my fiction writing. And that still has never left me. Even now that I'm working on a novel, you know, um, I, I never want that feeling to leave. So to me, what's so wonderful about uh, compression and what it can do is it can give you this sense of momentum. It can give you this sense of moving forward and forward. Uh, so even if the plot isn't driving us forward, which it often is anyway, the sentences are moving us yeah. forward because of that that density and that compression. So that feeling of momentum is something that really drew and draws me to the short story. I love that you can read the short story in one sitting, yeah. you know, um, and I, it also gives us this feeling that uh, it was written in one sitting, right, which which sometimes is the case, sometimes not for me mostly is not, not the case. I don't usually write one story in one sitting, but that feeling of it, right, and that sense of momentum uh, to me is incredibly exciting for me as a reader and as a writer. No, I, I can imagine that. I was reading one of your stories this morning, Olivia, which you published uh, recently about uh, a cat that may or may not be there, um, which was uh, you get that sort of sense from it where you start in this kind of normal setting with everybody doing things and the way it pushes forward with that momentum. It's really something interesting that really draws the reader in. I, I love that. So Thank you. Yeah. Well, well tell me uh, you're working on a novel so uh, is that in the beginning stages or are you? It's, it's, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you know, novels uh, can be, uh, oh, it's just a, it's a, it's, it's a big, big monster and a, a beautiful monster that I, uh, that I think about all the time. It's in the it, end stages in terms of drafting and putting together. Uh, and I, you know, when you're in something that huge, those characters are with you all the time. You know, you're doing other things. You look like a person in the world going to the drugstore or whatever. But but really, you're thinking about your novel all of the time. Yeah. Um, so I'm in that stage with it. And, uh, you know, I, I found myself at one point with it getting kind of bogged down. And uh, what I I had a conversation with a friend that really helped me. And this was that conversation that that we just had about momentum. And I thought, you know, there's no reason that you can't bring that same sense of momentum to the novel. Yeah. Right. It, there's no reason that I need to think of that as separate in terms of poetry or short fiction and now the novel. And so that got me kind of moving out of um, this place where I was feeling a little bit bogged down in it and thinking, OK, I need to go back to my roots there and remember all of the things that I believe about compression and momentum and bring it into the novel. So yeah. that helped me um, with it. The novel takes place just after Hurricane Katrina uh, in Louisiana, in a small town in Louisiana. Uh, so that's been um, really interesting to write about, too. We just went through Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, of course, um, in East Texas. So I've, you know, been thinking a lot about hurricanes and hurricane writing 
Yeah, especially yeah. the the after effects of that. So, yeah. Um, interesting. There's kind of something cinematic about that that approach to momentum. I'm thinking about. I just saw the the most recent Blade Runner movie and uh, how it's able to pack so much in and so meditate on a lot of different things, but there's never that sense that you're not moving forward, and that's a really hard thing to accomplish. Um, how do you get that from draft to draft? Like, how long does it take to kind of find that that structure to where you feel comfortable with how fast it's moving? Yeah, that's a great question. I I have to say that my ear does a lot of work, yeah. and my ear was trained in poetry. And that uh, that same ear, I bring it to my fiction. And I always say that my uh, sense of the sentence comes from my sense of the line, mm. right? And in poetry, that's our unit is the line. And so uh, I bring that same kind of ear to it. So that tells me a lot, reading aloud, uh, and feeling the movement of it. Um, also, you know, putting something away and then coming back to it a month later or however long, or even two weeks or one week later, however long I need to put it away for and pulling it back out and looking at it, I can feel if if it's feeling true to me, yeah. if it's feeling organic, if it's feeling true, and if it's moving the way I want it to move. And so maybe that's a that's not a completely um, satisfying answer in the sense that I'm saying, you know, you're, I'm going off of my ear or instinct or feel. Um, but at the same time, I think that is a big part of writing yeah. is going off of, um, you know, an, a, your, your ear that you've been working on for years and years as a reader uh, and then bringing it to your writing and then also that that the this feeling that you get and and kind of trusting that feeling if the sense of movement is is making sense to you and if it's feeling true that's interesting it's just like you know working with audio all the time there's like the sense of does it sit right in the recording mm. when you're mixing or mastering and it, it kind of feels like that or sounds like that yeah yeah and that also just comes from years of doing it, yeah. you know? And so, um, but at the same time, we're training our ears all the time, right? I, in, in, in the world. Um, and we're training our, our reading ears all of the time when we read. So um, even if you haven't been writing for a, a long time, your ear is doing a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Well, I'd love if you could share a little bit from uh, your collection. I'd love to. I'm going to read uh, just a little bit from the very first story, which is called Peter. And this story takes place in Iceland. And I was in Iceland for a summer. Uh, the story takes place uh, just after Eyjafjallajökull Yokel erupted, the volcano that erupted there in 2010. Mm. Peter. Ash fell from the wind. She began to take long walks before breakfast after lunch, she walked the weed-pocked path to the lake. White ash turned the lake's surface to desert and the tops of fjalls invisible. By the third morning, ash from Eyjafjalla Yokel coated the porch, the porch rail, the seats of the porch chairs, and the rented station wagon. The Hrasagakar had flown off, and the cabin's weather vane creak had stopped. Laura told Adam again she was going out. He was her son. She tied a gauze scarf around her nose and mouth. I look like a robber, she said. No one will see you, he said. He opened the door for her into the otherworldly weather. 
She was garish in the ash and her green flannel coat. At the cabin window, he watched her diminish, and like a little boric flame a quarter mile away, her back rose on the path, then shrank and went out. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, just looking again, I, I mentioned it before, but you've kind of lived all over uh, California, Iowa, New York, Nevada, and then starting off in the South and now Texas. Has that given you a better feel for the country? And, and how has that really kind of affected your writing? It's affected my writing in big, big ways. The, the stories that are in this book, they take place all over. Yeah. They take place in Los Angeles, in, um, in Iceland, uh, in uh, Las Vegas, uh, in Louisiana. The novel takes place in Louisiana. So first, just thinking about setting, uh, you know, the e each story takes place um, in either cities I've lived in or I visited. Some of them I haven't yeah. been to before. Um, but absolutely giving me a sense of um, the country, the world, uh, but also, I think, giving me a feeling that I can also write about places that I haven't been to yeah. um, because I, I can kind of get a feel in terms of talking to people who have lived there, doing my research, um, go, perhaps being in a city in that region. So not only writing about those places and those cities, but I think making me feel like I can write about places that I haven't been to before. No, I can see that. And yeah. uh, you're teaching now, uh, creative writing? Yes. Uh, how's that experience been for you? It's been wonderful. I teach at Sam Houston. The students are great. I teach both fiction and poetry uh, at all levels. So I teach introductory classes and advanced classes and graduate level classes in both genres. So it's really nice because I feel very ambidextrous as a writer in poetry and fiction, and I'm able to bring that to my teaching. And of course, in fiction classes, I talk about things that might come up in a poetry class. And in poetry classes, I talk about things that might come up in a fiction or a prose class. So bringing that kind of background to the classroom, um, I think, is is really, really, uh, uh, I hope, um, a good thing for the students. I've heard back from them that it's a good thing for the students. And it's a really good thing for me. It's really important for me to be teaching with all of myself, and that means bringing both fiction and poetry to the classroom. That meld. I, I like that. So well, Yeah. Cool. Well, Olivia, before we go, where can people find more information about you in case there is something upcoming? Yes. Uh, so my website, olivia-claire.com. Um, I have all my information there with all of my events that are happening. I'm going to Missouri uh, next month. I'll be in uh, Iowa City uh, uh, next, uh, uh, February, I believe, um, I will be in Dallas, um, in December. So kind of going all over, um, and, uh, social media, all of those links are all on my website. Great. Yeah. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If you're just tuning in with us, you're listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH. You just heard an interview with author Olivia Clare talking about her debut short story collection, Disasters in the First World. Next, we've got another interview for you, this time with author Darren Wong, who is the author of The Hidden Light of Northern Fires, his first novel. Let's dive in. Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with author Darren Wong about his debut novel, The Hidden Light of Northern Fires, which takes place during the Civil War in Town Line, New York, the only town north of the Mason-Dixon line to secede from the Union. 
How are you doing today, Darren? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Um, to kind of dive right into this, Townline is actually your hometown, right? Yeah, so um, the, the story is, I mean, Town, Townline seceded from the Union in uh, 1861, and uh, um, about a hundred, a little over a hundred years later, my my parents moved us into this uh, into this obscure little town, <laughs> not not really knowing what we were getting our, ourselves into, and that's where I grew up. No, interesting. And and when did you start delving into the history of the town, and and what made you want to write about it? Well, what what happened was so so growing up there, we moved there. I was five years old, and uh, um, you know, part of the thing is the South and the North treats history kind of differently. And we heard the story of the Underground Railroad, and we heard um, how the house I grew up in had been part of an. Uh, or we heard about the secession, and we'd heard that the house I'd grown up in was part of the Underground Railroad, and. Um, it never even occurred to us how weird those two things were together, <laughs> um, and uh, it, we just didn't think about it that much. It's kind of like a ghost story. You hear it, but it doesn't it doesn't Im- impact your reality. So after I came south um, after college, I started working with a lot of southern writers on on various projects, and and kind of the uh, one of the the questions that would always come up would be, where are you from, and you know. You know what's your story, and I talk about I talk about Tom Line and the secession, and they would always ask why, <laughs> why would a northern town <laughs> secede? So I uh, I started one day I I, uh, I started researching and I typed in my old uh, address. I typed it in the Google, and um, up pops this oral history of the family that had built the farm. Um, and I had never, uh, I'd never heard that family name, and but it had kind of passed, passed away. And I, th- I kind of think intentionally because of politics. Um, and it's, so I started, I, I read this story, and it's this, uh, I read this oral history. It's the story of this woman, um, among other things, uh, going to college at Alfred University and coming back and starting an underground railroad station in her father's barn. And the secession, and um, and her brother fighting in the war. Um, actually, he what happened is he joined the uh, uh, the Union Army, then quit, and then rejoined the USCT, the Colored Troops, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the Louisiana Native Guard, as a matter of fact. Um, so uh, um, it, it it was amazing. It was like this uh, this this whole world had opened up for me, and I spent years kind of digging into it um, and finding out that this really mundane place, this place I grew up, which I thought was the most boring place in the world, turns out to be at the crossroads of some really astounding history. And I I, had researched for about three years before I finally decided um, I've got to do something with this. I tried to to give the story away to my writing friends, my writer friends, saying, uh, oh, you should write this, but that never works. (laughs) And finally I decided I had to sit down and write it myself. 
No, I, I get that. It's a really an interesting point in history that you're saying, you know, really kind of lucky to have landed on this this thing and, and, and kind of featured it here. I'm interested, uh, obviously, no, no sides in history are, you know, monolithic, you know, the North being all anti-slavery and what have you. But I'm really interested how this town in particular, so far away from the Southern power structure, decided to secede and make that really kind of powerful stance there, which is really kind of surprising. Yeah, it it is a you know um, part of the part of I think what's what's gone on over the you know over the years since then is it's it it gets dismissed as an oddity because nothing there was there really weren't historically huge consequences to it. Um, they it rejoined the union in 1946 and kind of this uh, bizarre publicity uh, stunt, um, but. The the act of seceding from a country that um, that's at war. This is December of 1861. It's seven months after the uh, after the Civil War has started. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I mean that's it's a very desperate thing to do. It's a very radical thing to do. And and to, to imagine to imagine what what happened was you know kind of drove me forward in, in it. You know um, what I what I kind of uh, Figured out in the end is that uh, um, Town Line had been uh, uh, founded by a lot of German immigrants who'd come over from uh, um, in 1848 or so. Uh, they had and I, I, I had the records that showed this influx of immigrants, and I didn't really um, um, understand what that meant until I, I asked why did they leave, and there was this series of revolutions in in Europe in 1848, 1849, uh, revolutions, Mm counter-revolutions that kind of hit particularly hard in Germany. And people were being dragged off of the street, kids being conscripted and, and, you know, the kind of stuff that you hear about uh, ISIS today was happening in, in, uh, you know, Germany then. Um, And uh, these people fled and they came and found a place out in the middle of nowhere, so that they they could farm and raise raise their families, and then suddenly there's a, a revolution a little over a decade later, and you can imagine them saying, "I don't want anything to do with this." I mean, there's there's not there's not really any contemporary records of uh, um, of the secession. There's a lot of oral history around it. It mm-hmm. most certainly happened, um, and what I've what I've discovered is that there's a lot of around the reunification in 1946. Um, you know, there was there was certainly a lot of uh, a lot of talk about alignment with the South and everything, but there's there's no record of that. Yeah. Um, it it seems like they really just stepped away from tried to step away from the uh, the Union altogether and not have anything to do with it. Um, and that you know that feels that feels like a very human thing to do. To me, you know, and right now, if you think about the political, uh, our current political climate, I think the the instinct to uh, to be apart from it all is, uh, you know, feels feels very uh, uh, very appealing to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. No, I understand that entirely. Um, well, to kind of pivot a little bit, one of the the main focuses of the novel is the character of Mary Willis. Uh, who was a real person, uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about her and why you decided to focus on her in the novel. 
so so Mary, um, I mean Mary's the, and a, this astounding woman historically, right? She's she uh, um, she goes to Alfred University um, in 1857 and comes comes home uh, and starts running an underground railroad station in her father's barn in in 1858. That's um, uh, you know, Alfred was only the second college in the in America to accept women. The first being Oberlin in Ohio. Um, it's a radical choice to go to college in in 1858 for a woman. Um, and upstate New York, Western New York, in this era is uh, is one of the most radical places in the world. Um, uh, you know, feminism starts essentially in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, um, which is about 40 miles down the down the road from uh, um, a little more than that, but but not not far from from uh, from town line, um, and uh, abolitionism had its strongest voice in Frederick Douglass, and he's writing out of Rochester, New York. So there's this big brew of 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 uh, kind of radical politics and religion as well happening there, and Mary Willis was was right in the center of it, and she was she was clearly involved in it. Um, and uh but she was she was also clearly isolated in in this in this small town that that uh um eventually wanted nothing to do with the the with its surroundings and i i having grown up there i'm 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 half asian and uh town line is still very much um a purely white farming community mm-hmm. um you know i felt that i felt that isolation growing up and and Hearing her story, seeing you know, finding finding her biography, or the the uh, the outlines of her biography and uh, family history, um, I I felt like I really knew her. I felt like I had a lot in common with her. No, I can see that. That that's really interesting. And your uh, your house was actually uh, her family's house, right? Or the the barn? Yeah. So so what happened was eighteen forty in eighteen eleven Nathan Willis came west from Vermont. And settled out in the um, what was then known as uh, the Holland Land Purchase, the Niagara Frontier, and he he built a sawmill and a barn and eventually the the uh, um, the farmhouse. And um, she used the barn as Mary Willis used the barn as the Underground Railroad stop. Um, the family lived in the in the front house, um, and. Uh, we bought the my my parents bought the house and barn. The barn got was half converted at that point um, into a house, and we moved into that in uh, 1971. And that's where I grew up. And we used to go in to the cellar of the front house and um, sneak down in the cellar of the front house. And there was a a tunnel six feet deep dug into the side of the wall of. Um, you know the cellar where I I've always imagined they would they would hide hide slaves, um, and there's this massive brass bell hanging on the uh, the roof of the house. Um, so, which and we've never really understood the purpose of that. There's, so there's all kinds of extraordinary um, history in this place. There's the the local uh, the local house museum has several cases of Indian artifacts dating back. Several millennia um, that were dug up in my backyard in this in this old house. Interesting. Um, you know, t- uh, I'm kind of fascinated in kind of the writing of this book, and I wanted your opinion. Uh, you know, the the Civil War and and how its history is represented uh, has always been a con- 
contentious kind of uh, divisive debate that's raged in this this country and outside of it. And particularly in this moment, you know, with Confederate mom and monuments uh, being debated across the country, uh, I'm wondering, what do you think is the responsibility of, of novelists uh, who write about the Civil War and how they represent the period? You know, one of the interesting conversations around uh, a monuments right now is, you know, the the argument that if you're tearing, if you take down a monument, you're taking down, you're trying to erase history. Um, I understand I understand that argument, but the part of the other the other side of that conversation is um, that it, it would it, that assumes that all of history is represented in monuments. So removing this one part of it. Um, removes uh, removes that history, whereas everything else is represented evenly, um, and that's clearly not the case. Um, I, I, there's 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 no record of of the the Seneca uh, besides this, these uh, two little um, cases of, of uh, artifacts in all of all the New York, but they they ruled that land for for thousands of years. Um, so, as a novelist, we we're I'm I'm allowed to to tell a story to tell a piece of history that um, that doesn't have a that doesn't have a plaque that doesn't have a statue in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I found a train record. I found a train schedule posted on a wall in Batavia, New York, in a in a museum that showed that that Abraham Lincoln's um, inaugural train and funeral train both passed through the farm I grew up on. Um, and there's no record of that. Abraham Lincoln was on that was on the land that my family owned, essentially, but there's no record of that. Um, that seems that seems noteworthy, but the but the town has made a choice to not make make note of that. Um, as a novelist, we get to tell those stories, and uh, um, there's there's privilege to that, and there's also there's there's a lot of responsibility to it, and to to be. Um, so as, as a novelist, as a writer, you try and tell the story of the, of the voiceless, and, and uh, um, you do your best. No, I can understand that. That's a good response to the question. Before we go, uh, one, one last question for you. Um, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm reading uh, uh, The Mapmaker's Children uh, by uh, Sarah McCoy. I just met her this past weekend at a festival, and the book looks, looks uh, fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Well, Darren, this was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, David, and I hope to see you soon. That was author Darren Wong talking about his debut novel, The Hidden Light of Northern Fires. Before that, we had author and poet Olivia Clare, who was talking about her short story collection, Disasters in the First World. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM, You can catch us every Thursday at 3 p.m. and on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. As always, this interview, as well as WRBH's other interview programs, can be found on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.